my topic this morning is hearing God in His Word. So that, that's where we're going. Um, if you could navigate on your phone to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 23 and 24 together. Amazing statement God makes to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. So here we go, verse 23 of Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory or boast in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Let that he who boasts, boast in this, that he understands me and he knows me. You know that um, anthropologists, if you look through the, the history of kind of world expansion and exploration in the anthropo anthropological field, that in that field there has never been an atheistic tribe discovered. It's, it's fascinating. What, what is it in the human heart that drives man to some kind of expression of religion? And of course those expressions are, are, are wide and, and varied through the most primitive kind of human sacrifice to the more complicated expressions of religion like Buddhism or, or, uh, or, or Islam. Man is a fundamentally religious creature and people have wrestled throughout the ages with an explanation of that. Why is it that people all over the world are religious? And there have been s several people who have tried to explain this. Kind of secular humanistic philosophy in, in the 19th century uh, led in, in many ways by uh, an anthropologist named Ludwig Feuerbach says this uh, Feuerbach's contention was that the religious urge in man is, is simply um, it, it's a wish projection it's a psychological wish projection of uh, a father figure of, of, of an ideal father figure that it's, it's, it's kind of a cry for help from uh, an insecure, fearful human condition in which people cry out for the knowledge that maybe someone is out there looking after us. But it must be said that, um, this is what C.S. Lewis said, he said, the fact that people want there to be a God is no, is no justification for the claim that there is no God. In fact, this religious desire in man is actually an indication that there is something implanted in the human heart 
And we're trying to answer the question, where did that come from? Well, the, the Bible makes it plain. God says in His Word that, that He has set eternity in our hearts. A knowledge of eternity, a knowledge of transcendent things. God Himself has put it in our hearts. Then a man who was deeply affected by Feuerbach was a man named Karl Marx. And the Marxist philosophy built on Feuerbach's theory and said that religion actually is a political tool. It's, it's a tool of the ruling class that takes advantage of this kind of weak desire of people for an ideal father figure. It then capitalizes on that by using religion to control the masses while they enjoy the wealth and power and control of the country. Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. It's like a drug that just keeps them satisfied. But the very fact that religion has such power over the masses is a testimony to how universal this religious urge in man is. See, Karl Marx is not answering the question. And then, of course, uh, came Sigmund Freud, and he wrote a book called Totem and Taboo. And in Freud's book, he, he said that uh, he was a psychiatrist. He said most of the psychological disorders that he treated as a psychiatrist were uh, traced back to a feeling of guilt in his patients. And he said most of the time, that feeling of guilt then stems back to a belief in God. And so to Freud, the answer to most of the psychological problems that we have in the world was simple. Just let's be rid of God. And of course, you know, you think about that, it doesn't answer the question, does it? Maybe people feel guilty because they should. Maybe man, man has been given a conscience by God. You see, what all these men were doing is they were approaching the question of the religiousness of man with a presupposition. With a pre-commitment to an atheistic worldview, they were coming into the question already believing there is no God. And so now we must try to explain, given the fact that there's no God, why people are religious all over the world. And yet they cannot answer the question. The Bible, of course, answers the question for us uh, in many places. Romans chapter 1 and 2 being a classic. And there, God says that, Man is religious because that's the way he's been made. That God has created man with, as uh, Louis Burkhoff was a great systematic theologian, Louis Burkhoff put it this way, he said, Man has an ineradicable, is a good word, <laughs> ineradicable means it cannot be eradicated, it cannot be removed. Man has an ineradicable knowledge of God. It cannot be removed. And this is what the scriptures tell us. That man knows there's a God. And so we are without excuse if we do not serve Him. God has revealed Himself to human beings. And this of course flies in the face of 
perhaps the dominant worldview in the Western world today, which is a worldview known as deism. Very few people who are actually out-and-out atheists, people who say, I do not believe there is a God. Actually, very few of them. Most people fall into this category of being deistic. What deism says is, okay, there is a God out there, often referred to as, you know, the big man in the sky. But he cannot be known, he cannot be reached, he doesn't involve himself in this world, he doesn't form relationships with people, he certainly cannot be communicated with. Prayer is just, you know, a delusion of religious people. God cannot hear prayer, he doesn't respond to prayer. God does not involve himself in the world. We just have to get on with life on our own. He's out there somewhere. That's, that's the way most people live. Now, of course, that flies in the face of what the Bible tells us. Because the Bible says that God has revealed Himself to men. That word uh, revealed in the Greek New Testament, two words are basically used there. The one is revelare, the other one is apocalypsis, where we get the apocalypse or the revelation, the final book in the, in the canon of Scripture. And both of those words carry the sense of someone peeling back a curtain. So the pulling back of a veil. And what Scripture clearly tells us is that only God can reveal God. The initiative of revelation is entirely in God's hands. Human beings cannot and will not pull back that veil themselves. The Bible says there is none who seeks after God, no, not one. And every other religious expression of men is, in a sense, a suppression of the true revelation that God has given all people. And it is a way in which people seek to satisfy the religious urge without humbling themselves and submitting to the God that they know. The one true God who created heaven and earth. It is God who must come to us and peel back that veil that we might see Him and know Him. So because of sin, we cannot find God. Sin has entirely darkened the human personality. The will has been bent away from God in rebellion. That's what the fall of Adam, our first father, did to the entire human race. It bent us away from God in rebellion, away from Him. And so God in His mercy must come and He must pull back the veil and show Himself to us. It's an act of His grace when He reveals Himself. And that now brings us a little closer to the topic this morning. Because if it is true that it is God who takes the initiative in love, in mercy, in compassion, to reach into this blind and darkened realm of man where sinful men cannot find God and will not search for Him, then a massively important question must be asked. If it's God who takes the initiative to reveal Himself to us, how does He do it? How does God reveal Himself to us? Because the fundamental understanding 
of God's revelation is this. We don't get to choose how God reveals Himself to us. You can't decide how to find God. It's not each to their own. It's not, well, I, I find God in nature when I go walking in the mountains. Or I find God in, in meditation. Or I, I follow this religious way. Or I follow that religious way. God doesn't give us that liberty. Because the initiative is not ours. God has chosen certain ways in which to reveal Himself to man. And if we are to know Him, we must make use of those ways that He has given. That's, that's humility. And what the Bible says is that God has basically revealed, revealed Himself to man in two ways. Theologians have broken this into two categories of revelation. The first they call general revelation. General revelation is basically God's revealing Himself through the created order. This is a revelation that comes to every human being. All you have to do is be alive and you are immediately aware of the presence of a God in this universe. And not just a God, but a, a God of supreme power and might and wisdom and righteousness and cleanness. There's all sorts about His attributes that is made known through the created order. This is why... People are without excuse because of general revelation. And this explains the religious nature of man. Because of general revelation. And we can break general revelation down into two basic spheres. The first is the, the, the personhood of human beings. That, that within us, God is known. God has made us in His own image. We are like receptacles for the knowledge of God. We're like satellite dishes that cannot help but receive the, the revelatory waves of, of God's making Himself known. We cannot help it. We are receptacles. We are made to know Him from our very beings. We're made in His image. But not only as we, as we exist within ourselves do we know God, but when we look at the created order outside of ourselves, we also know God. The 39th Psalm puts this beautifully. The opening words of that Psalm Say this, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, the skies, show His handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech. Night unto night they reveal knowledge. There is no place or land or culture or people where this voice is not heard. When we look into the night sky, we see countless billions of stars... In majestic, peaceful order. We know there's a God. Yes, we do. John Kelvin put it this way. God daily discloses himself in the whole workmanship of the universe. That's beautifully put. But general revelation, as much as it... It renders us accountable because we do know there's a God and yet we don't search for Him. We don't seek to please Him. We don't seek to honor Him as He ought to. We're not thankful to Him, says Paul in Romans. Though we know God, we're not thankful to Him. We take all of the good gifts that He, he gives. Life and breath and all things and relationships and beauty and, and health and, and all the wonders of the world that we live in. And yet we don't thank Him. We don't honor Him for it. 
So, so all general revelation does actually is it renders human beings accountable before God for their sin. And so revelation in the general sense cannot save us. Something more has to be revealed to sinful people. Light has to break into this world for us to be saved. And this leads us to that second type of revelation which theologians call special revelation. And special revelation is that additional revelation of of himself and of his plan to save us. It is an understanding of the redemptive work of God in history. An understanding that God has broken into this world in order to save people. In order to turn people's hearts back to himself. It's the knowledge of that plan. And that, and, and, and the, that knowledge is not revealed to us in the created order. That's what we call the gospel. And in order to know the gospel, the story of God's saving a people for himself, that he might present a bride to his son. That story is told in scripture. I want you to know this this morning. One of the things I want you to come away with is this. God is not incapable of breaking into this world. No, he's not. Many people, philosophers will tell you, if there is a God, he's He would be so different to us. He couldn't break into this world and speak to us. I mean, He couldn't use human language to to speak to us. Well, the Bible tells us otherwise. God has broken into this darkened world, and He did so in the very body of a human being. In the person of His Son. Not only has God condescended to pull the veil back and reveal Himself to us and his saving ways but God himself came and lived among us he took on human flesh so the breaking in of light into this world supremely happened 2000 years ago when Jesus Christ was born he who was called the word from all eternity past he he took on flesh and he dwelt among us And in Him was light. In Him was life. That life was the light of men, says John. Light has come to us in the person of Jesus. Now if Jesus is that moment where light breaks into this world, where the revelation of God is now made known to us, that we might be turned back to Him and know Him. What did Jeremiah say? Let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands me and that he knows me. Now that requires revelation. And that, re- that revelation happened 2,000 years ago. When he himself came and lived among us. Now before Jesus came. And while Jesus was on the earth. And after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven. Both before, during and after. God has used truth. The, 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 the conveying in human language of truth about this this event in human history where where he was born of a virgin in a little country called Palestine. The God over 6,000 years of human history has explained that event in human words. He's predicted it beforehand. 
while it was happening, there was much teaching and explanation from Jesus Himself. And afterwards, there is the testimony of those who were with Jesus. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, they wrote of the significance of what had happened when Jesus was with us. God has communicated the truth of this great event in human words. God has explained verbally to us the significance of His Son and what He came to do. I want you to understand this. Words are important to God. Yes, they are. God has chosen to use words to peel back the veil and reveal Himself. That we might understand Him and know Him. He uses words to do it. God changes lives through truth. He, he bears witness to an event in history. And, and when we, we, we hear those words and we understand those words, our very hearts are changed. He sweeps us up into this great story of redemption. He sweeps us up individually, personally, and as families. And He makes a community out of us. He, he sweeps us into this great story of, of, of purchasing a bride for His Son. He sweeps us into it by telling us the truth. That we might embrace that truth for ourselves and live in that truth. When Pilate was before Jesus, Mark, interestingly, commented on that interaction. Jesus is, is stood before Pilate and, and Pontius Pilate, now judging him. He said this, are you a king then? This follows the discussion you raised, Mark. He said, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world. For what cause? That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus said that he came to bear witness of the truth. So much so, in fact, his whole life was about bearing witness to the truth that he could say this, I am the truth. Jesus' major ministry on the earth was teaching. Yes, I know He came to die, to pay the, for our sins, to bear the punishment that should have fallen on me. He took it when He died on the cross. So that justice could be satisfied. So that I could be set free. I understand that. But while Jesus was on the earth, His major ministry was teaching. Yes, He healed people because He is powerful and He's compassionate. His major ministry was communication of truth in human language. There's a story told us he saw a, a great crowd who had come out into the wilderness to, to come to him, to be with him. An interesting comment says he had compassion upon them and so he taught them. Think about that. Yes, later on, he multiplied a whole lot of little fish and, and loaves and he fed them. His major act of compassion was teaching. That's because truth is the means by which God is going to transform you. Truth. 
I'm a charismatic. I believe in charismatic experiences. Many of you just did my course on gifts of the Holy Spirit. We spent eight weeks talking about the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. But I want to tell you, my fundamental conviction in life is this, that God uses truth to change us. Jesus prayed that great high priestly prayer in John 17. He said this, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Where is this truth that we're going to find that will transform and change our lives? It's here. He's given it to us in a book. God has actually revealed himself in human language through words of his own choosing. And this is what the Bible claims of itself. B.B. Warfield, great systematic theology lecturer, he said this, As Christians, we go to the Bible to get our view of God, of man, etc. So we also go to the Bible to get our view of the Bible. If this is really what it claims of itself to be, the inspired words of God Himself that are sufficient in themselves to change you, to transform you from being a lost sinner whose heart is bent away from God to being reconciled to God and then increasingly being conformed to the glorious image of Jesus Christ. If that's what this book does, then we would expect that it must be self-verifying. You can't look outside of Scripture to justify the truth of Scripture. If this is the fundamental basis of all truth in this universe, it must be self-authenticating and self-verifying. And that's exactly what we find. You go to the, the Scriptures and you read statements like this. This is Jeremiah. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell his dream. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? What are the false prophets when compared to my word? He says, is not my word like a fire? Is my word not like a fire? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. This book claims of itself to be able to burn away every deception. To burn it away from your life. To smash it into pieces. Jesus said it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. See, this, this is, is no ordinary book. These are the very chosen words of God to be able to transform a human life. And, and, and why does it have such power? Because God attends the reading of His Word, the preaching of His Word, and the teaching of His Word. He attends it with the very power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it works. Because the Holy Spirit rests upon the preaching of the Word, the reading and teaching of the Word. The very power that created the universe... As you read the word, as you hear the word being preached, as you are taught the scriptures, the very power that said, let there be light, speaks into your heart through these words and says, let there be light. And there is this power. There's power in this book. 
The writer to the Hebrews says that this, this book is, is living. It's living and powerful. It's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, says the writer. It pierces between the soul and the spirit. Those, those two places where our, our soul is still fleshly and we're still beset with sin and the spirit which is fully redeemed. It, 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 it gets between. It shows where the distinctions are. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the human heart. The Bible says, you read this book, it reveals your heart to you. I want to finish because I've, uh, I've only got 32 minutes left. <laughs> I, I want to just have a word with you about what your first thought is when you hear the topic... Hearing God in His Word. You see, as charismatics, I think we can commonly fall foul of this trap of thinking about some kind of immediate, miraculous event that happens in our Bible reading time in the morning where a scripture suddenly jumps out of, you know, off the page, as it were, and, and it, it addresses something that you're immediately going through in your life or some big decision that you have to take and you feel like God has personally, immediately just spoken to you from a verse of Scripture. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't do that. He does. That has been an experience of my life where God speaks to me in real time from His Word as I'm reading it. But let me tell you this. 99% of God's communication to you through His Word, God speaking in the Word, is not through immediate, miraculous, charismatic experiences. We would do better to understand that there is the voice of God in the normal reading of Scripture, that God makes known Himself and His being through a progressive Disciplined getting to know the Bible. If I had more time, I, I would talk to you about why you must read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Why you must see the single unfolding plan of God through time and space. When you begin to see that I mean, this book has been written over one and a half thousand years by 40 different authors. But when I read it from beginning to end, I cannot help noticing that this thing proceeds according to a plan that has never changed. You begin to see how incredibly in control of human history God is. You begin to see how faithful He is to His promises as you read that whole book over and over. And and it's not going to happen the first time you read it. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon that said, before you've read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation ten times, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) How's that for a challenge? Now, I don't know if if that's true. I'm just... (laughs) There is some truth to it, okay? The more we get to know God's Word in its totality, the more we get to understand Him and know Him. What did Jeremiah say? Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands me and knows me. That is an incredibly difficult charge to keep if you don't have a discipline of reading this book over and over and over and over again. When you get to know this Bible, you get to know God. You get to see in the promises God made to Abraham. You get to see 
through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of human history into the present day where I am actually a recipient of the blessings of Abraham. That God's plan has never changed. He is faithful to His promise. And that God's nature is to bind Himself to human beings using human words. Through language He makes promises. He makes covenants with people by breaking into their lives. By building relationships with human beings. When you face trouble in your life, if you have this book hidden in your heart, there will be something which stands on a solid rock when the, when the, the waves and the wind and the floods come. You will stand strong because an ineradicable knowledge of the faithfulness of God would have been built into you from your Bible reading. We are in desperate need in our times of Christians who are not biblically illiterate. And through many places and ages, that has been a scourge on the church. Let us be a church that knows the Bible. That stands on the solid rock of a faithful God who has shown Himself. And has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. Don't you ever think when you open the Bible in the morning and you do your Bible reading, just because you don't have some kind of magnificent experience where something jumps off the page, don't you ever think that God is not speaking to you? Yes, He is. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that He knows me. Like I know my wife. I, I, I know how she will react in certain circumstances without her having to even speak to me. I know what she's thinking. Because I know her. David knew God. God didn't have to tell David, you know, you live in a, a beautiful house of cedar. I'm living in a tent. Where's my... He didn't have to tell David. David knew God. And he knew this is something's not right here. I'm going to build him a temple. And God says, I'm pleased with you. Because you know me. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me. We, we know his, his voice. We know the scent of our Father. We know His scent. And there's no shortcut to that. That's a life of Christian discipline. And I'm calling us back to that this morning. Tom, will you pray for us?
completely forever. The Bible says, when you look to Jesus in that kind of fashion and you find what his, his book says, it starts to speak to you by saying you need to repent of your sins and put your trust in him as a savior. And when you do that, the Bible says you get born again. It may be this morning that you're in that place and you utter up that kind of a prayer where you say, Lord, I, I, I hear you this morning. It, it is true that you are the savior. Save me. When you do that, then go and tell someone afterwards that you've done that. Your life will never be the same because the Bible says when you put your trust in me, you're born again. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you this morning because you are mighty. We are so thankful, Lord, that you attend the preaching of your word. Thank you, Lord. That you make yourself known by your spirit in our hearts as we look to you. Lord, we, we're amazed that you would use us humans, that you would condescend even to take on human flesh and come down and reveal yourself to us, and that you would use words. You would use words so that we could understand, so that we could comprehend as humans how great you are, how mighty you are, how beautiful you are, how loving you are, that you are a father, that you are a father. For we've got it right, that there, there is a father who's revealing himself, and that he's adopting children and bringing them into his family. We thank you for that. We thank you. We cry out to you, Lord. We cry out to you. Those of us who have already turned to you, we cry out that you would save us for your purposes on this earth, that you would enable us to be a people who walk with you humbly, that we would know your peace and your life. Lord, we're thankful that we could meet this morning in this building and share something of our faith together. We're thankful that there's even leadership transitions and, and growth and life and new people taking on new mandates for you, Lord. We thank you for that this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word this morning.